0: Oh, this is Joy and host of I Change Justice, where members of the Restorative Community Coalition talk civics with people who are living in the aftermath of an arrest. People confronting the compound dilemmas, ripple effects, and consequences on their family, friends, and taxpayers. Listeners' discretion is advised, for this information can be disturbing and can trigger an emotional reaction. This is about lived experiences discussed for taxpayer education and to advance justice system reform. It is not to be used for legal advice. Hello, this is Joy Gilfillan with I Change Justice podcast, and we're here to talk about collaboration, how it moved from caucusing 50 years ago through teamwork and development and collaboration. And then today, we're really here to talk about collaboratories and how we can use them intentionally to create conscious change. With me today to talk about the business of justice and how we move from polarization and fighting with each other through conflict and into teamwork is Melrose, how do you call yourselves, Mel and Rose? What's the name of your company and what is it that you do? And who the heck are you guys? Because you're now in Whatcom County, but you came from the East and you're now in the West. And you're different. Talk to us. Well, it's Melrose
1: Ministries for Positive Transformative Change.
0: Okay. And what is Melrose Ministries for Positive and Transformational Change? What does that mean to average non-collaborative people, people who are maybe stressed out and fighting between the politics of today and the traumas that we're dealing with today. Bring that down to earth and tell us what that means in your real lives.
1: I think it's a way for us to bring our experiences over the years together. Now that we are officially retired, Um, this gives us a way to continue our activism of bringing people together and saying, yeah, there are issues in the world, and there are ways to to meet the challenges, but the challenges never go away.
0: And That's the contract it. is and the contrast is good, right? Oh yeah.
2: Well, yeah. In fact, not only good, necessary. The issue is that the, one of the things is that we see change as <laughs> inevitable. The issue is what kind of change is going to happen, and <laughs> do, do you do you help it happen in a positive way? And uh, help others see pathways that they may not own be able to see? Uh, and how do you help empower people who have capacities and gifts they have not yet understood or released or brought into the world? And so we, we kind of just look and say, we see somebody that we think maybe we can help them a little bit, see themselves differently. Uh, I wish I could say give them a lot of money, but occasionally be able to get a little bit of money that sometimes helps bring, bring something into being or help them see something differently. Uh why not use our resources to create uh the, the ripple effect of love and caring and capacity. I think we got that from our families. I know. And
0: you're both you're both ministers, right? And you have intergenerational networks. That fascinated me when I first met you because you're very different and yet together you're both highly proactive. So give us an idea about who each one of you is a little bit.
2: Well, since I was born first, <laughs> <laughs> no it's interesting. I'm kind of this interesting thing. I was born kind of a, as a war baby on the edge, 1944. So I'm on the end of a major era, and a lot of my family's rooted in that in terms of participating in the war in some ways, and others not supporting it. Uh, so I was imper- came into a family of that kind of inheritance, um, uh, but also I was also ahead. I'm mind was always, let's build, I don't like this. I wanna move ahead. We gotta create something new and different. And I was born into a family, a multicultural, multiracial family network um, that shaped me because one of the things that was true for us is our family was always centered in love and support and caring and helping one another. And that our job was to share with others who are in need and caring. So we had both our internal family And we had kind of our extended family network. And then also because we were committed and very involved in our congregate churches, we had this church family. And then there was this education family because of that time period. There was a time when everybody kind of worked together to try and create uh, a a mutual community of love and caring, especially for the children. And I felt well protected and cared for.
0: And where was this? What part of the country? Oh, yeah. What, grew, what is right. your grew, multiracial I, heritage? I think that was right.
2: I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Okay. and so um parentage is uh you know my father is is as African American and Cherokee, um, and my mom's side has all kinds of uh, <laughs> folks in it in terms of Native American culture, uh Irish, um uh, obviously African-American as well, but uh, but we got Germans and we got Canadians. And we got, uh, I just Jewish. got it. I'm, I'm serious. People don't believe me, but I, I got my family tree. So,
0: <laughs> <you>. <laughs> so I'm going to make a joke. And if it's inappropriate, you can tell me and we'll either delete it or whatever. But so you are the pot, the melting pot calling the kettle black because you've gone through the fires of life. And you're coming out the other end with this beautiful wisdom that you're able to bring. So is
2: that an appropriate joke? No, actually, it's, it's kind of an appropriate truth. One of the things is I, I talk to myself as a multiracial, multicultural human being, but I was enculturated for my survival and well-being in Black culture. Okay. I had to understand that to be able to live within a world that did not see me as human. So you
0: are calling the kettle black, and you embraced it, and you learned from it.
2: I absolutely do. It's part of my survival.
0: Excellent.
2: But I was always taught to respect other people. Uh, The issue for me is that uh, my mom said, you're not required to love everybody, but you are required to respect them and honor their humanity. Awesome. Including those who don't see you the same way. And that's the way I was taught
0: wow that's brilliant and and rose you're like a rose you're white you're a white rose so talking to me about that <laughs> oh you're right you, you're white oh. <laughs> <laughs> well i was um
1: uh, i grew up in in a rural area in west virginia and, and in gal place ohio which was just across the river from west virginia and My Mel said he was a war baby. Well, I was too, but my mom was um, from Plymouth, England. My dad was in the Navy and they met during World War II. And so it was interesting to grow up in West Virginia in a smallish town and to feel like with, particularly on my father's side, because that's what we knew, all the cousins and everyone out on the farm and And yet knowing that my mom was from England, so I always felt like I had some, it was somewhat somewhat of an advantage to know that there was more to the world than just the small town that I was growing up in. And the other thing in the town was also going to church. So there was this community and that's where I learned about the importance of community and working together with people in a community of love, um, which has been with me all my life and kept me open to be able to fall in love with
0: Mel when I met him because he was a fellow human being, still is. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's interesting that the rose is, my mother always loved the peace rose, and but the white rose had, had a certain beauty and integrity to it that was different. And learning to work within this diversity, this is a culture. So you guys had a physical cultural difference, but you had an intergenerational cultural combination and then at the same time you were born and raised during this incredibly contrasted society with a lot of violence in our social systems talk to us about what the cultural diversity and that's not a positive word the cultural clashes that we were dealing with at the time and how we've been able to move and i've I've witnessed you guys over the last little while move from my understanding of looking at diversity people used to fight for diversity you know to be individualistic and now i've actually come to become aware that diversity is delicious it brings such new ideas to the table so that we can spawn all new all new creativity all new ideas because of so much i actually welcome really welcome diverse opinions these days into these collaborations so Talk to us about that time in history, because you guys are not spring chickens anymore, as they say. You know, talk to us about that, because it's been 50 years, 60 years since you got involved. I think what was interesting
1: being in West Virginia during the time when integration was happening in the public schools, um, maybe it's because there were so much, There, there isn't a lot of wealth in the state, I mean, beyond the. among most of the people. Mm -hmm. So when integration happened, and I just came out and they said, you know, that was the law, our schools integrated. My junior high had been the former all black um, school. So half the faculty was black and half was white. And it was a very well integrated school system. And There weren't any protests there weren't any i mean i would watch tv and see all this horrible stuff going on and all this and hear about the schools on the east coast in virginia where all all the parents were sending their kids to private schools and then here we were just this is the way it was and this is the way it was supposed to be and we were supposed to go to school together
0: so So isn't that interesting that you're talking about in a way from me i'm from the west I learned, I didn't learn about integration. I learned about segregation. And now you're telling me that there's an East and a West side just in Virginia, okay? And to me, the East and the West of America was like, oh my gosh, what are you guys doing over there? Like I'm out West. So you're using these interests. So segregation came first, perhaps, and but you were on the cutting edge of integration. And so you were moving already, even in your own state or your own bioregion, moving forward does that make sense? Yes it does
1: And you went to a segregated school which was wonderful
2: for you I went into a wonderfully culturally enriched school that kind of <laughs> of real stuff is right. what and I say that honestly because I went uh-huh. to school our teachers I laughed because in that era our, our principal was uh, had his PhD in our elementary school. Most of the teachers at our school had a master's degree. They were all black uh, at that time, uh, but they were more than that. They also were the people who staffed the recreation center. Uh, Mr. Wright, who was my principal, was a choir director of our church. And so there was a sense that I was truly connected. And our church, in a time of segregation, was integrated. We had white members in the Episcopal church. when We, we could not have gone to white Episcopal churches as a black Episcopalian, but we had multiracial families and we had white members so we were progressive at that time in terms of the community in terms of the laws and i will say it's interesting because i grew up in columbus ohio and at that time columbus was kind of a melting pot uh in terms of uh the universities there uh the, the federal government and the uh, and the jobs uh the industries and stuff so we and we actually had a very active black community that was uh it, independent, I mean, self-sufficient in some ways in parts of the community. So we had this strange mixture within Columbus. I had segregated communities and sectors. We had integrated kind of oddly sometimes by blocks, but within sectors of city, but within some of the workforce, I saw people uh, who might not have lived in, 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 in uh, integrated things, but worked in integrated settings much earlier than most places in the country. So my wow. city the world was very different in terms of what I thought it could be, because I I knew it was real joy. That's the reason I'm bringing it up. So mm-hmm. I went to something and saw that this is the way it could be, and it could work. And so
0: that's really fascinating. I have a question, because both of you guys are from the East, and I'm becoming very aware that I grew up as a cowgirl in the West, and none of this was even part of my lexicon until I was, you know, I went to college and I I got into politics, and I realized that the whole world was sort of like, all this stuff was happening. Um, where were the Native American people in the culture at that time in your states and in your bioregion and your religions? I'm just curious about that. Not, I don't want to take us off the dog trail too far, but I'm curious. You know, I grew up with a lot of Native American mm-hmm. reservations issues here, so mm-hmm. I was aware of that. And then at one point, I realized that there were no reservations really left down Absolutely. in the south. So I'm curious, were there any left in your area? Was it even an issue at all?
1: I would say it was no. It was not an issue. I mean, interesting. I mean, our opinion, our opinion. We basically learned that Native Americans lived on reservations, or else they were dead. It was
0: that's there interesting. Was
1: not much history. Um, taught. Actually, there wasn't that much good history taught to us because when I went to seminary and started reading history and understanding history and meeting Mel, I think I went around for about uh, several years just being royally pissed that I had a high school education, a college education, was starting to work on my master's, and I didn't know what really went on in our country. Wow. And I didn't know Black history I was learning about women's history, the women's movement was happening. There was just so much history that had been white male, and and all the rest of it was really suppressed. So I was not a very pleasant person sometimes. (laughs) 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 because I was so angry. And this is kind of jumping around, I guess, but when I look at what's going on in Florida, I think how all those kids are getting cheated out of a good education what they really need to know because I went through not knowing stuff I should have known.
0: And And the reality
1: is going to raise a whole bunch of kids who are going to end up being royally pissed at some point.
0: Well, and what's interesting about that is that when you withhold knowledge and you withhold wisdom and you withhold diversity, our world is diverse. I mean, we cannot deny that we're living in a global, a globalized world and it's all over the internet and you can't pretend it's not there. I mean, you just can't, it's, it's permeated every single part of our world. So going into fear and trying to pretend that we can cover this up or that up or this, that's got to be one of the challenges that you guys faced as we moved, as you moved into your careers as ministers. So how did that evolve a little bit? Let's just, actually, let's take a break right now and we'll be right back and have you guys, give you guys a chance to talk about that. What happened when you guys started working together as ministers and started working into this next phase of your life? We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening.
1: Are you a member of Patreon.com and enjoying our podcasts as a patron, you can support the production of the I Change Justice podcast series. You can also support the Restorative Community Coalition, get our news, updates, and access to our digital training programs downloaded directly to your email address on a regular basis.
0: Welcome back to the show. We're talking with Mel and Rose, and these are two p- members of Melrose Ministries, and you got a bunch of fang- newfangled words with that, but... You started working together at some point and I don't know where you want to start. Do you want to start at the point that you guys joined up in your ministries or do you want to start talking about where you started collaborating together to make conscious change? You choose.
1: Well, it's interesting, I guess, partly in how you define work
2: um, because we yeah. have
1: always collaborated and we have always presented Something for people to talk about sometimes when they meet us is about how how do you get along? And we've had all kinds of questions about our relationship through the years. So we've always supported each other, but we have also had children, and so I did more part time work, and Mel did more full time work for a while. But there was always there was always us figuring things out together. It was always well. The,
2: part of the irony of that is she didn't know me, and she didn't know people of color. From <laughs> from squat. <laughs> right, right. And she, and she came, but she was a person who believed in the religion that said, uh, we're all God's children, that we are all supposed to love one another, we're supposed to do good in the world, and she had a she had a, a universal heart. And so Oh,
0: that's an interesting <laughs> phrase. I've never heard that. A universal heart.
2: Right. What and a
0: nice phrase.
2: And I think that I also have that and was raised yeah. to have that. And one of the things that happened is when she came to the seminary um, and we um, we saw each other got to be in the same space and place in a setting where not only could our minds connect but our hearts could connect. And in some ways it was safe enough environment in that community. Because again, this is a time of integration era. And, and a lot of the folks coming at that time were fighting for at least the black white that to try and change that dynamic and to try and begin to create the sense that uh, that we needed to have equality in the laws and those kinds of things. So this is all shaping us before it happened. Cause again, I always say I was born into an apartheid nation and I and I was cause we were until legally until 64, 65. And people and I always say, so that was shaping all of us but somehow in the midst of that some of us got some different messages. We were able to create some different stories or see some different visions of what the world could be like. And so we came to seminary and we both got shocked. The reason I bring that up, because this is a place we thought we could get this done and found out that all the issues and problems were there too. <laughs> yeah. we, we had these white fight schools coming together, several students coming together, and the white males were trying to figure out how they came together and who was going to be on top of who was together. And the issues of even the students of color and women were kind of, uh, because we had set up this fund to create a, a black church studies chair through the students, when King, Dr. King was killed, raised money. Some money and stuff got, money always gets in the way of some type things. In, in this instance, even though I, I think it was not intentional, but some monies and stuff weren't properly accounted that we could account to people who were sending stuff. And they were so hooked in their political games and doing the white male dominant stuff, that they didn't pay attention. We said, we have a right to know this. You're responsible for it. And But during that era, we just were not willing to take shit. Let me excuse my language. And we said we were have done it right. We asked for it. It's our right. It's our money. You haven't been accountable. You can't keep doing business as business as usual. And I think a lot of us had to wrestle and say, are we willing to take and, and have courage enough to act on the truth we know is here to force people to have to deal with it? So I say that and Rose and others came along later doing the same. So.
0: so it's interesting. I wanna I wanna reflect on what I heard because you brought a lot of stuff in. And from your culture, obviously you know these words. From my world view, I don't necessarily. Like I only recently, you know, a couple of years ago, learned what the heck apartheid was. Like really? you just say, oh yeah, seriously. I you know, it was like that thing happened in Africa, right? I mean, it's not I I mean whatever that's what and i we thought it's it the united states it was south that's africa right. not us right. that's right it was they took our model <laughs> yeah but that's the point so i so you used that phrase and then you also mentioned it was during the same time that dr martin luther king was killed right so that was an assassin that was political and civil rest civil unrest all Absolutely. that stuff's going on and
2: yeah
0: And now you're talking about inside your religion and money and bringing all these things together. And you guys were learning spirituality and religions and and faith right in the middle of all that. So, Rose, what do you have to say about that collaboration part of this? Because it, to me, doesn't sound like collaboration. It sounds like a nightmare of violence. So what's the difference between contrast, conflict and violence and collaboration to evoke a new idea.
1: Well, I think one of the things that we had
0: was the space to work things out. And Ah. so
1: there was the black caucus. And then when we women came along and realized that we weren't really being heard and we weren't really being seen as women who could be professional in the religious world, we formed the women's caucus. And the caucusing made all the difference. And then the caucuses could also collaborate on what was needed for the greater good of the student body and actually for the
2: greater good of the school. And there were white there were whites who caucus, there were progressive whites who were committed to integration and wanted to see it happen. And so they formed a caucus too. And so the issue was people could talk in safer spaces and places about things, admit their fears or anxieties or concerns, also learn and explore together what are some new ways that we can work together to make things happen differently. So this was happening in smaller groups, and then we had overlap with some of us who trusted each other, reached out, and we all said, you know, if we all work together, we're more likely to be successful. And so that's the combination of doing the work internally, doing the work collaboratively, collectively, which is what that's about. And How do we collaborate to do something?
1: And Bill, you- we can do strategic planning together.
0: So and what you- was interesting, I just, I heard another word in the middle of that because we've been talking about segregation and then integration. Now you talked about separation, not isolation. So you talked oh. about separation enough into safe spaces so people could trust a, com- a a conversation to happen so you could get a uniformity or a unanimity around common languages that were safe in those spaces and then they could be brought back into new relationships so you could have these collaborative conversations. Am I hearing you? Yeah,
1: yep.
2: it
0: can take a long time. It doesn't happen overnight. <laughs>
2: well, part of it is what we, yes. what we had to learn to do and grow into was to tell the truth. And so to one another, and to tell the truth in a space that, you know, when you're in the polite thing and you go into ministry, you're supposed to learn how to work with everybody and make them feel good and stuff like that. But you know, when you're trying to deal with, with 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 positive, transformative change and understanding, you have to have honest conversations and you have to have an accurate analysis of how something operates. And you have to know or work together to figure out what would be better and how you get there. And so that's important in any process from those small ways. We learned that needed to happen in larger circles in the community and in the larger religious community, because we did a lot of work academically and interfaith on the national level in our ministries as well, bringing people together. And that's why I'm saying the irony of this in many ways is some of the stuff of how to do collaboration happened in religious communities, and a lot of them have forgotten how to do it. So it's
0: interesting, you use the phrase trust, and you've also used the phrase being honest and being able to talk about things. Now there's, again, we've got colloquialisms and differences. You know, some people are honest when they're very rude. You know, I hate you or I this or I that. That's being honest on one frame, but it's also honest, angry, and it's also honest, accusatory or shame blame gaming. And what you're talking about here is being able to learn how to sit back And be honest about your feelings or about the conflicts or about the hurt that is caused because of something. So you're able to dissect the problem safely instead of cover it up with politisms and false nicenesses. Like you were were learning how to have tough conversations, not to reprimand, punish or betray or hurt but to dissect, to understand so you could comprehend and speak together. Is that...
2: Partly right, Joy.
1: Partly right. One of the things we were also taught going into ministry is one of the roles is to, when you are there, choose to be a non-anxious presence. Ah. So that you yourself don't get caught up in all the dynamics, but you enable the dynamics to happen. Or you let them happen and you're still, you're, you're kind of like, well, the Native American word is holding. Hold food. Food. Um, you stay so has to do that. You have to stay present and allow for things to happen, but not get totally out of hand.
2: So uh,
0: you hold the space for the disruption and the uh, differences uh, to occur without pandering to anybody. You're not molly people. You're not falsely holding some energy you're just actually holding a container for people to be able to express safely and accurately what they're feeling when there's disruption and distrust and hurt and things happening
2: at the level they are because everybody can't we don't start at the same place with jumping from oh we're light and I can behave differently some people have to trust and be able to let it out in a setting to trust enough that they can do that and still be loved in fact they have to even test that before you can move forward and I think that's part of what doesn't happen in our culture, not a place, not a lot of places and spaces where you can do that uh, and, and and be seen as uh, okay or get, get, get locked up or, you, or, or in polite culture, you become a problem because you make other people uncomfortable. But but this stuff is uncomfortable. Oppression is uncomfortable. And you
1: have to make the difference between people being, they bring up this thing, I want to feel safe. There is a great difference between being safe I am being uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable means you need to look at something within yourself and figure out why you're uncomfortable. And
0: you're responsible for that. And you can be physically safe, but uncomfortable because you're having to examine things that are going That's on. Amazing. So safety way. has different measures to it, just like being uncomfortable has different measures. If you're sitting on rocks in a beach and there's a flood coming down, that kind of uncomfortability means get the heck out of the way, right? So it's learning to walk in these different shoes and learning to listen so you can allow other people, And because there's also, I mean, I was listening, you guys have this intergenerational wisdom because you've you grew up with a lot of intergenerational stuff. Some people have have been born and raised they had no generational history they're orphans they have no generational experience at all and all they've lived in is the little cloistered world that they currently live in especially with television and and little you know computers today we can live in real real thought bubbles and isolated spaces so being able to cross-pollinate and recognize that there are people who have generational trauma and history and uncomfortablenesses that are habitually trained into families and long time history of beliefs and acute trauma that happened right now and acute hurt that's going on right now. And you have to allow that acute hurt to be outgassed because if you've got a wound right now, it's a good idea to let that stuff out.
2: Right. That's right. That's absolutely right. In fact, it's necessary. You got to do it. Or you can't, as you say, you can't really move to another space until you copy this. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting, I think that Rose and I shared is that we respected each other enough to believe that neither of us were trying to intentionally harm the other or do damage to one another. That didn't mean that we didn't do things that pissed each other off or, hurt, or caused hurt, mm-hmm. we didn't believe it was an intentional to diminish or to lessen uh control. Uh and that sometimes it may even be un- we had to, at the male-female dynamic of uh, think about when we we're dealing with names in that era, whose name are we going to use, starting out at one place. And you know, my issue, the family for me and the name of, of through slavery and carrying that through and stuff was highly important in terms of carrying that lineage on into the future. Uh, and so when Rose initially took my last name, that was important to me. You had a different path.
1: Right. And I, Mel, didn't want to hyphenate at that point. The time he got around to maybe thinking it was all right, I was in a different space and said, I really need to be who I am and to use my name of origin. And by that time, we were both ordained ministers. And people would (laughs) call and say, may I speak with Reverend Hoover? And I would say, this is (laughs) she. And they would be all confused. Yes. So, because it was this natural thing, well, as Reverend Hoover, I'm speaking to to a it it. So it just professionally it made sense, and personally it felt better to just. So that's
0: it. interesting because oftentimes when I grew up, I was I didn't care what last name I had. It was like irrelevant because everybody knew my first name, and so I just it it like was not a non-issue. And then as I moved into this place where I had to choose then the whole conversation of genealogy and my children and whether my children were going to be men or women, what happened if, if, I mean, what happened? Like I already had a career by the time I got married. And so do I meld my name? And then I finally went, well, I don't want my kids to have to fight over what their last name is and have that whole conversation. So I'll just yield and go with the name I had and then years later, I did end up divorced, and that created another whole stigma. So it's interesting how the labels we use to brand us can mess with who we think we are and and how we are perceived in the world. And then that's another intergenerational, intercultural, intercareer. Conflict. It's very well.
2: It's also the dynamic that happens not just in, in the family, but when we go into the cultural groups who, who do you want to be called, how do you want to be identified in a point in time? And then intergenerationally, again, each generation sometimes wants to define itself, or at least want to have special words that are their words, they have similar meanings. So, part of that is how do you both let that happen and yet not diminish each other's humanity and personhood.
0: So let's take another break. We've got another segment coming up, but we want to talk about from this all this plethora of wisdom and knowledge and background, you guys moved through 50 years of time and you've moved through 50 years of learning and exploration about how to get things done. And you've obviously been very committed to making change, positive change happen in the world and being conscious about that. When we come back, let's have you talk about a couple of situations where you know that some people would have felt completely defeated. There's no way we can fix anything or change anything. And we're just in a mess. But you moved forward through something and saw change happen. So let's be right back with Mel and Rose. And we'll talk about that. Thank you to our sponsors. You can find links to them and a list of our donors on our website at therestorativecommunity.org. You can also donate to support our direct services and our restorative community outreach and initiatives by clicking on the donate button. So welcome back. I In the, in the chatter in the middle, we, it was interesting. I was listening to you guys before we got back here and, and started over. Which came first? It's like almost like the chicken and the egg conversation. you guys have done so much work. Where do you start? So where would you like to start about how you developed this collaborative collaborative spirit and evolved and what did you learn? and how do you take 50 years and put in a couple examples?
2: Well, it's interesting. I think because of uh, what was going on at the time in terms of schools and integration and stuff like that, one of the things that happened is that got involved in integrating the schools. And working with people in doing that, um, and in Rochester, in Rochester yeah. yeah. And one of the things is I was um, also there were there were a lot of community organizations in Rochester at that time that kind of were like caucuses representing. This is the
1: beginning. This, this would have beginning. been fifty years ago,
2: right? Beginning <laughs> of That's why we went back to the fifty years ago, right? Good. And, and both of us had connections to some of those groups, um, and Rose. And, and what happened, of course, is that we said that a lot of people were trying to take over the neighborhoods, the universities, they were running expressways through, and people were feeling like their lives were being lost and disrupted. And part of what we said is that we can, we can change that. We had churches, we had relationships, she was in one, I was in another, and that we got talking to people about organizing. So the issue wow. was it's not praying. We, we said, yes, believe in God. Do those things. Pray but, the get out <laughs> but get out and organize. And, and learn nice. how to do. So, and so we started teaching the sp- folks the skills of doing how to do that and beginning to work together. Um, and there's so many early stages. We we launched a number of things just by supporting people in our in the neighborhood and the community. Watching the courts, Joy, one of the first things that happened is that my first uh, congregation I was at, uh, one of the members... Um, what had killed someone. No, let me say, let me that doesn't sound right. She was a, domestic she was a domestically abused, abused person who was beloved in the community, had wonderful kids. We created this congregational neighborhood program that brought black and white kids together and family support. And our goal was to take the suburban white women who had been doing it, who realized that they shouldn't just keep doing it, they should be owned by the community. So they were trying to work themselves out of a jobs. This is an interesting. And so- and, but they thought the way to do that was to help train some of the old brothers and sisters and some of the parents and get them to come in and be the teachers and make space for that. That would take wouldn't happen overnight. In the midst of that, one of the key people killed her husband. He'd been very violent, abusive to her and the kids. And to be honest, most of the folks said good um, because yeah, he was a yeah. he was mean, angry, violent self, person. Self defense. So, and it was self defense. But the course of that time didn't treat women so well in that time. So the congregation, I was asked, would I be willing to go and give support on their behalf? I did. But when I sat there, I learned a couple of things. Number one, they kept putting her case off. (laughs) She wasn't getting justice. and wasn't being treated fairly. But as I sat in the courtroom, I began to notice that things happened differently in terms of the sentencing for certain kinds of very similar things. And all of a sudden, it began to dawn on me that women and people of color seemed to get different sentences from the white male structure. I say that, so I said, am I just making this up? Or am I seeing this? I went back to the church and just reported. And I said, I'm inviting some of you. Would you come and go sit and see what's going on? And they did. And white women sitting there looking. Now, people didn't know. One was married to one of the leading judges. Other was one of the leading attorneys. They got an education, Joy. They were married to these folks, they were part of it, their families had benefited from all that stuff, and they didn't know how the courts work. And when they learned, they got pissed off. Yeah. And came back and organized other women and said, we can make a difference here. And so they began to collaborate across this and took on their husbands and others and began to set us a series of conversations in the community. So that's when we begin to have these collaborative conversations from judges attorneys, community members and stuff, and began to say, this is not okay. We need to have a different way of doing business. So out of that came a court watch program, and out of that, a jail ministry program that at that time were new almost in the country. And those models then got spread through a lot of community groups and church groups and became national. So that's all I'm saying. That We didn't know that when we started. We were just trying to help a family and help have an honest support and caring for someone. But it turned into a national issue. We didn't know it was going to happen. But it's. But anyway.
1: But we're open to things happening because you never know what's going to happen when you're asked to do something. Right. And when you get involved and when you find some of the underlying issues. Right. It, who knows where it's going to be. But that's part of the uh, challenge
0: and the joy of it. Sure. And, and that's it. part of the discovery. That's part of the collaboration. You're collaborating to discover. You're collaborating to learn what could it be if it wasn't that? How else was it? Irene did that when we started with the Restorative Community Coalition. And I remember the first time I walked into the courtroom, I'd never been in a courtroom before. Never. (laughs) Had no experience of it whatsoever. And she took me to the first arraignments. And there were like 50 people going in through this this arraignment thing right and i'm watching all these attorneys and i'm all all these people in suits standing around waiting and very few actual clients like the people who were actually hurt they were in the jail or they were waiting at home and their attorneys and it was just fascinating and it changed my entire understanding of what happened So from that, you learned about collaboration, you made conversations, you learned about domestic violence. That that spawned all kinds of changes. So what happened Mm -hmm. that it jumped now to the next phase? Or can you complete that, Rose, before we move to the next one? We moved to
1: Connecticut, and I got involved with groups of women. um, With the what women? Groups of women who were involved with issues of domestic violence. I see. And we ended up, Mel and I ended up our house being one of the safe homes, because this was before shelters came into existence for women. So this was a lot of our, my work, but also Mel was with the council of churches there. So he was able to collaborate. We collaborated with the council because that was a state, well, it was regional, but it was also state. So we ended up getting. Um, shelters throughout the state. And then I went from that to work with sexual abuse crisis centers and directing the one in our region. Rose is
2: a catalyzing force for this. She doesn't always say this. She led that effort and got these things going It became statewide.
1: What we learned was that you also had to involve politics. We had to get some state laws passed to define what sexual abuse is. We had to get laws passed to mandate, really, that police officers had to go through training to be able to listen to someone who was a victim of sexual abuse and to believe women's stories. So we did police trainings. We did trainings for people who, we had wonderful volunteers so we could staff a a 24 hour hotline. So we had to train people on how to listen on the hotline. Um, It was pretty amazing work and it worked. Lots of networks were developed. We had meetings. with the various centers throughout the state so that we could collaborate together. We got the state to give us some money um, to keep the centers going. And initially we thought we should just divide up this money equally and not worry about it. And then we said, but yeah, some centers have no money and some centers have lots of money. So we all brought our budgets together and looked at them to see who needed more of the money.
0: Wow, so that's a whole <laughs> yeah. different level of instead of fighting over money and fighting over territory, and this is mine and this is mine, your collaboration skills built and, and developed and flourished so that you could actually apportion things fairly so that people could work and be helped together. Look, that's what their real needs
2: were. It was also so, interracial.
0: Yeah, so we know things can happen because we've been fortunate enough to be in groups where they've happened. So let's take it to the next level when you when you went there, because I know we're moving fast, but 50 yeah. years went fa- went by fast, right? So, yeah. so you went from one package into another learning curve and into another one. What happened next?
2: Well, actually, I guess because we ended up being in, in uh, 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 Stanford at that time, I was heading the Council of Churches and Synagogues at a moment in time. Rose and I had been very active in the ecumenical interfaith movement. We were leaders in that. And all, through the early years, and then I became head of one of the the national organizations. that got involved, and then I in that I began to meet other kind of ja- uh, activists of that era, because we're dealing with the Reagan era and stuff like that, and coming the the change and the, the shift to small government in a way. So some of us began to say a lot of the work and progress we thought we'd made in the civil rights were being undercut, undermined, and that we needed to find some new ways. So we created a collaboration across. Um, we even got there was a time when interfaith groups and ecumenical groups didn't meet together because wow. I don't know if you know that ecumenical is just Christian uh, church interfaith groups were across all religions. And so we actually helped navigate and negotiate a couple of groups that brought everybody together who was doing this kind of work for the first time. And then out of that developed kind of a core group to think about a, a kind of a broader vision of how things could be done. And that catalyzed all kind of stuff as we did this over the years nationally. And it brought me to the uh, point of meeting some of the folks in the Unitarian Universalist Association who were doing a lot of good justice work at a time that Rose and I were not feeling grounded in the same way in our traditional faiths, uh, an Anglican and, and Baptist. And we also were kind of a different level in terms of the interfaith ecumenical movement because we wanted to move more in a spiritual and a universal spirituality and creating worldview. And uh, that took us into a whole new avenue of of opportunities and stage and led me to be part of creating uh, a transforming of faith. Being actually hired to become an internal change agent in 1987, uh, hired for the Unitarian Unitarian Universalist Association. Interesting. uh, And and to lay out a vision and work in creating to transform the faith and its basic tenets and values of that time, to upgrade them to be a, a truly interracial, multicultural, democratic vision. And wow. some of that was in the sense of, of what we call beloved community concept. We adopted into that in a denomination had it moved away from its Christian roots and it's been much more humanist. And we said that all those voices are important but not only one of them or part of one is insufficient. We've got to find new language and a new way of bringing the best of everything together. And we have to create the not yet, as we called it, something mm-hmm. that doesn't exist yet, but something that we can together co-create. And that's what we talked about, this kind of changing the world. Kind of wow. Way.
0: So it really did. So you were able to move from racial and physical and conflict in social systems up through conflict resolution and transformation in educational and political and physical conflict like domestic violence. And then we're able to move to spiritual integration, if you will. Like there's a lot of isolation and there's a lot of people who yell at each other over what is your, you know, I got a better religion than you got. (laughs) And you guys now are looking at it going, you know, that's not the point. The point is, what is it that makes you happy and beloved in your heart so that you can be kind and loving and gracious in collaborating for the betterment of the rest of the world? So what do you have to say about that, Rose? Because we're running into the last few minutes how would you ca- encapsulate this whole process into where we're at today? Because today we're in a in a world of hurt, actually. And some people would say, oh, we're all going down, going to hell in a handbasket, as some people would say. And there's so much conflict and trauma and, uh, you know, there's just no point. But I get it from your experience and from working with you guys. Yeah, there's a lot of point. So what is the point and how can we do more intentional collaboratories to help each other when we're dealing with technology also. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: One of my favorite definitions of the word justice
1: is that it's love in action. Um, But I also believe that love is not enough. Working from a love ethic is very important. But we also need truth. So um, drawing from those two I guess, major concepts, which I think are major concepts in our life. I trust love
0: and truth to come through. So it's actually, you didn't say a duality. You said a triality to me. I heard you say it's love in action. So that's a verb. So it's love and truth in action creates a movement forward. That's a really great summary. (laughs) And that's what you're doing in your collaboratories, right? That's yeah, think, pretty profound.
2: Yeah, I think part of it's bringing a lot of us together and bringing the best gift and insights into a space and a place, and to say, let's focus on, let's look at finding something that might work, could work. We already know what doesn't work, <laughs> and so, or if we, we don't, we'll figure it out pretty quick.
1: And we have experience that some things do, and we
2: know some things that do work. I mean, the other thing is that. Sometimes people move into situations and they throw away things that are worthy or good. That you don't always have to start fresh. Sometimes there are elements and aspects that are right and should be preserved or should be the foundation. And then you build on that, but you also build on the things that are missing or that you need to find. And you have to experiment. We made a lot of mistakes. I mean, we tried the, the issue. My dad told me something a long time ago. He says, when you try something and it doesn't work, Guess what? You you know you've learned something. What doesn't work, so you don't have to do that again. (laughs) And so, so that's a step towards finding something that does. And I think it's worth having
0: a compost heap of things that didn't work in that time, in that in that space, at that time. Right. Doesn't mean it won't work in a different time, in a different space, for a different reason. (laughs) Yes,
2: absolutely right. Right. And you know, timing is critical. The right thing at the wrong time is still not going to work. And, and the other thing is that my experience in organizing over the years is that you don't always have to have the best right thing, because what happens, what you have to have people who, are, who believe enough and have the courage to bring about that thing that will work. And once that happens, then it opens up all of other kinds of possibilities. And so one of the things is perfection can get in the way of success. I know that sounds ironic, but uh, it's really true. And so, uh, our less is more; those kinds of things. I had to learn that. Uh, Got some good advice in my life, and 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 said, you know, sometimes. uh, And and the other thing is, it's not always right to be right, and I've learned that those are important understandings because you're building a collective. You got to have a community, and those are the things that will kill it if you're not not careful.
1: That's one of the reasons I like the word collaboratory because it brings in the idea of a laboratory where you do experiments, where you try to figure out what's going to work and what isn't. And it gives you room to
0: to make mistakes, to try things. um, You share your data
2: afterwards and have others test it, too. And
0: And to find out if a one degree shift or a three degree shift is enough. Yeah. Or, or maybe even a half a degree shift. You, you talked at one point with me about youth and being able to trust. And I think if we were to wrap this up in the last minute or two here, you talked about trusting youth. And one of the stories that people will say is, oh, you know, we've already wrecked the world. The kids just have to fix it because they got the energy. And when I brought that up to you guys, you said, No, it's not about that. Talk about that as one of the, because I think that is the opportunity we have today. We have youth who have an entire world of knowledge at their fingertips that we didn't have when we grew up. And yet they know how to use those things, but they may not have the wisdom that you have or I have from my background and my history. So can you wrap it up in the last minute or two, each one of you separately? Well, we said we needed to trust youth
1: and that is I think I do trust the next generation to figure things out for themselves but at the same time I don't believe in dumping our issues on them we have our issues they do affect the next generation Mm -hmm. so there's a co-responsibility there I think we cannot deny that we still have responsibility to listen to youth, to work with youth, to support
0: what they are working on. When and think, to bring your guidance. And to bring your guidance or your guideposts or well, your
2: That's exactly guideposts. right. I think the yeah, I think that's the issue, Joy. We have experiences that are important. They don't have lived experience of some of the things that we did do. And some of the things they don't know through lived experience can undermine what they're trying to do. So at least making them aware that there's some obstacles or some rocks that they may not be aware of that can wreck what they're doing. is It's my responsibility as an elder to share that kind of information. What they do with it is their right. And I yeah. have to honor that. But it's my responsibility as an elder to be able to be there. And it's also my responsibility to let them make their own mistakes and support them in love as they do it.
0: It's interesting. I I, well, I got to add this. when I, I grew up on a farm. And so climbing trees was really normal for me. And I learned very young, because of lived experience, that you don't climb up the tree until you can see how you're going to climb down. That's wisdom, right? It can be really exciting to go all the way to the top. But if you happen to break one of the branches going up, it's better not to continue to go up. It's worth going, okay, how am I going to get down from here before I climb even higher and break more branches? That's sort of stupid, but you don't know it unless somebody is there to help you or unless you've bruised your nose a couple times. So I just wanted to say, that's my last minute, but is there something else that you'd like to close with that we haven't had time to cover? Because we're pretty much out of time, but give us a sentence or two, if you want to just wrap this whole thing up that's hopeful for the future, helping people who are in trauma right now. we got challenges. How are we going to make it through?
2: Believe you can do it. Number one, you got to believe that it's possible for us to be in a better place, in a real place, and then work your ass off to do what you can to help it happen and and support others in doing it. And sometimes you get out of the damn hole uh, when you do it together. That's all I know, Joy. That's all I've lived my life doing.
0: That's great, Mel. What about you, Rose? Also,
1: agreeing with that, but take time to breathe. We live in a beautiful world. Enjoy it. It will help center you. It will help you get through the rough places just to appreciate the beauty of what's around you.
0: Trust it and be in action, loving and sharing your truth. I just heard the message from you guys. Thank you so much. We'll close for now. Thank you all for listening to the I Change Justice podcast. Good night.
2: Love to all.
0: Thank you all for listening. Please share our podcast with your friends and family. Subscribe at Spotify, iTunes, or from your favorite playlists. At therestorativecommunity.org, you're invited to subscribe to our newsletter, connect through social media, or send us feedback on our shows. If you're inclined to help, you can volunteer, donate, learn more, and connect at info at Contributing helps us empower those silenced by oppression so they can emerge into their higher potential. Thank you.